Thank you for coming. And happy Pride weekend. Um, did anybody go to the outdoor screening of Saturday Night Fever in Spinning Fields on Thursday night in Amongst the Rain? Nobody, not even the people who said they were going. <laughs> okay, no, I didn't either. Um, well, I was just looking again online this morning at the opening sequence, you know, John Travolta swinging down the street in Queens or the Bronx and uh, thinking what a great example that is, a great illustration of the way that sexuality can make us feel incredibly alive. You know, he walks up to a shop front and compares his Cuban heels with the ones in the shop. And, um, you know, it's, it just looks very, very vital, doesn't it? I don't know if you realise, by the way, this is irrelevant, but um, the, <laughs> the legs weren't filmed at the same time as the rest of him, apparently. <laughs> it's a little-known fact that they, they, they forgot to get all the right um, shots in the first filming, and then he wasn't available for a second one, so they got someone else's feet. You look at, go back and look at it on YouTube. You'll see that... The feet are often filmed completely separate from the rest of his body. <coughs> anyway, okay, so to get on with the talk properly. Um, well, it starts with a few questions. How much of your identity is to do with your sense of yourself as a sexual being? And I mean that whether or not you're actually getting any at the moment. Um, how much of your identity is to do with yourself as a woman or as a man or as somebody who doesn't quite fit either of those labels? or your sense of yourself uh, in your ethnicity as a black person or a white person. Um, maybe you see yourself as heterosexual or lesbian or gay or bisexual, or you're not quite sure. Uh, do you actually have just one identity? And do you have a sense of the kind of person you'd like to become? Who you'd like to be by the time you die? Do you ever feel a bit stuck with any aspect of the way that you are now? Buddhism teaches that we have limitless compassion, limitless change, potential, sorry. Buddhism teaches that we have limitless potential for change for the better, for deep wisdom, for compassion, for fearlessness, for generosity. And the question of how we get from here to there, well, that's a great adventure, limited only by the way that we see life and ourselves. And before I go on any further with the talk, I just want to set the context, because obviously this talk, this talk is being videoed and uh, lots of other people will view it and not know where we were and why we were doing it. So the context is that it's part of the Lesbian and Gay Pride Festival weekends, uh, weekend celebrations in Manchester, uh, Manchester, UK, not New Hampshire. And uh, it's taking place at exactly the same as the Pride Parade, <laughs> which is going to be going probably some, somewhere nearby uh, in this building because our building is, is uh, right in the smack in the centre of Manchester, as we all know. And so it'll be featuring lots and lots of flatbed trucks with people in very little, um, little well, little, very little, very little shorts, <laughs> um, <coughs> dancing around on motorised floats, which will be a bit of a contrast to the scene today in this room here in the Shrine Room in the Manchester Buddhist Centre. Um, and it's been raining a lot today, so those people might actually come in for a cup of tea afterwards, desperate, drowned rats. Um, although we know that, of course, it doesn't rain that much in Manchester, really. Um, and uh, we're in the Manchester Buddhist Centre, which is a part of a worldwide Buddhist movement run by an order called the Tri Ratna Buddhist Order. And uh, this international movement was previously known as the Friends of the Western Buddhist Order, or FWBO, which was founded in London in 1967, which, by... Uh, it's, just, it's just a coincidence, but it was the same year in which sexual relationships between men, sexual relations between men were partially de decriminalised in this country. 
And I should also introduce myself. So some of you will, well, lots of you know me, but some of you don't. I'm not a nun. Okay, so I'm not going to talk about the, the, the topic of sexuality as someone who doesn't have any sex. <laughs> uh, I am somebody who is, does have sexual relationships. I'm also ordained, which is why I'm wearing this case around my neck. Um, and in our order, uh, we don't have monks and nuns, we have Buddhists. We have Buddhists, some of whom are ordained and some are not. We don't have lay people either. Uh, we just have Buddhists at different levels of commitment and experience. And uh, we take responsibility according to our gifts and according to our levels of experience and responsibility. And in my experience in this Buddhist movement, it's very unusual, uh, I think that sexual orientation is virtually a non-issue. This is my experience anyway. Virtually a non-issue. Uh, it's interesting that our group worldwide has never had a lesbian and gay group. Uh, maybe the occasional meeting, but no ongoing lesbian and gay group, which I think says something about uh, the fact that I think people feel very comfortable just to be themselves, generally. Um, people feel respected, respected for their personal qualities and their practice as Buddhists. And uh, our community includes people of all sexualities and, and people who are also transsexual and transgender at all levels of responsibility, which I think is extremely unusual. He also notices that people feel quite free to go between relationships with this people of the same sex and people with relationships with the opposite sex without ever seeming to necessarily need to define themselves. So, in this talk, I want to say a little about what Buddhism might have to say about sexual ethics and what might be a reasonable sexual ethic for the 21st century Westerner from a Buddhist perspective. Then I want to go on and talk about what identity is in Buddhist terms and the importance of positive, respectful and compassionate self-view, a very positive sense of identity. Then I'm going to attempt to link this to uh, the little-known peaceful revolution in India that Vidyamala mentioned in the introduction. And I want to place all this in the much larger context of our unlimited potential for wisdom and compassion. So at first sight, maybe Buddhism has nothing useful at all to say about modern sexual behaviour in Britain or anywhere else in the West. After all, the Buddha lived two and a half thousand years ago in India in a totally different culture, a tribal culture. And uh, if the scriptures are anything to go by, he did give teachings about the respective duties of husbands and wives in a tribal society. He did give teachings about sexual misconduct between monks, who of course were supposed to be celibate. He didn't say anything about modern unmarried relationships, short-term relationships, casual sex, same-sex relationships as we now understand them in the West, civil partnerships, uh, contraception, uh, anything you can think of practically that would be relevant to us. He didn't say anything about that. <laughs> so perhaps I should just stop now and we'll all go and have tea. <laughs> um, so where should we go for guidance in our sexual lives as Buddhists or as people who are interested in Buddhism? I need to emphasise straight away that Buddhism does not include the worship of a creator god. There's just no such thing in the Buddhist view of the world and existence. So there's no question of any Buddhist ever appealing to divine authority to determine which kind of sexual relationships are acceptable or not. Now whether there or not there is a god is completely unprovable either way, but either way, the question is simply, I would say, irrelevant to Buddhism. It's just not that kind of religion. So 
straight away some of you might be thinking, get me out of here, and some of you might be thinking, yippee, this sounds very interesting. Um, people always want to look, though, for authority figures, don't they? So they might say, well, who's the most famous Buddhist in the world? It's the Dalai Lama. Let's maybe look to the Dalai Lama to see what he has to say about sexual relationships. Um, he's much revered, and rightly so. Uh, he has surprisingly little-known views, though, on same-sex relationships. Um, and uh, or on sex in general, actually, as we'll see in a minute. Um, he's actually said it's not possible to be lesbian or gay and a Buddhist. Now, as you can imagine, the Buddhists of San Francisco were not very happy about this. <laughs> and uh, when he was there in the 90s, they had a sort of closed meeting with him, in which they discussed various things uh, with him and senior Buddhist teachers. And uh, it's reported from this closed meeting that he did make the rather enlightened statement that actually he alone could not change the tradition. There was a traditional teaching on this, but he couldn't change it, and the tradition would change when enough people, sincerely practising Buddhists of all sexualities, demonstrated that they were sincerely practising Buddhists, and this was ethical, and the tradition would change when the people, when, when, when the people in the tradition changed, as in the people are in fact the spiritual community, and he can't change it, which is good. Um, unfortunately, though, he then reverted later to saying that he still thought it was a contradiction in terms. And uh, he particularly said that the various orifices are to be used for the purposes for which they were intended. So obviously, um, I'll spare you the details, but you know, the mouth is for eating with. Okay? Um, and uh, this obviously leads to all sorts of questions for everybody of any, any sexual orientation. <laughs> uh, you know, it, it re it, he also said that sex is for procreation only, not something I've ever heard that Buddhists, Buddhists say. Um, and what about the question of pleasure in sex? Again, doesn't touch on, didn't touch on that. So lots of Western Buddhists who consider him their teacher, well, I've asked them, you know, what, what, do you, what do you think? And they say, well, he's Tibetan. He's a monk. I think I'll look elsewhere for my teachings on sexuality relevant to me as a 21st century Westerner. And the Dalai Lama isn't the Buddhist Pope. There is no such thing as a Buddhist Pope. Nobody is in charge of all the Buddhists worldwide. So uh, that is what we must do. We'll have to decide for ourselves. Buddhism has very firm ethical principles, and it really is up to up, us to apply them as we consider best. So let's move on to some key teachings of the Buddha. He talked about suffering. He observed that there is suffering in life. We all suffer. We suffer in the sense that we all feel emotional pain about things which happen to us in life. I suffer, other people suffer, you suffer. And he observed that the cause of this suffering is always the fact that we desire things um, and events which we don't have or we have events and things that we wish to go away, we desire them to go away, we wish things to be other than they are. Either way, we're not contented. So uh, a good example of this, this is a minor example, okay, so you're, you're sitting watching a, tele, watching a film on telly or in a cinema, and next to you you have a large bag of crisps, which every now and then you absentmindedly dip into. And at some point, there comes the moment where you dip your hand in and discover that you've already eaten the last one. Okay. And can you just think back to that? There's a minor moment of, of sort of, oh, isn't there? Now, if you're three, this is a disaster. If you're an adult, 
This is just a sort of minor moment of awe. But that is the, that's the sort of minor end of the scale with regard to what, what Buddhism refers to as suffering. Um, if you want to scale it up to a more adult level, you think about um, when a relationship comes to an end, say, that's big awe. <laughs> or somebody you want doesn't fancy you back, that's big awe as well. Um, so there's a whole range of suffering, from tiny to big. Um, but it's all caused by roughly the same sort of thing, which is wanting things to be other than they are. Luckily, the Buddha taught that there is, uh, he also taught that there is a way to retrain ourselves very gradually and gently and kindly so that we suffer less and less by living with greater and greater contentment, awareness and ethical sensitivity. So then the question is, how do we train ourselves? Um, well, that's a very, very big topic. I'll confine myself to just talking about the five ethical guidelines that the Buddha gave us. And they're not commandments, because as I said earlier, there isn't a, a creator God in Buddhism. They're, they're five guidelines. Um, well, we often refer to them as the five precepts in English. Um, and they're what got me hooked on Buddhism, I think. They are completely transferable in any culture from century to century amongst any group of people. And it's up to us to determine their application in life. So the first is to do one's best to avoid harming living things. So that's the overarching principle, to avoid causing harm. Hello, welcome. There are lots of chairs here if you want one. And uh, number two is to avoid taking things that haven't been given to you. Number three is to avoid sexual misconduct. Number four is to avoid speaking or communicating in ways that aren't true, kind and helpful. And the fifth one is about avoiding clouding your awareness, say with alcohol, drugs or um, computers, uh, sex, all sorts of things you could use. But uh, Buddhism, early Buddhism mentions uh, alcohol and drugs. So all of these could relate to our sexual relationships, not just the third precept, which specifically describes, specifically refers to sexual misconduct. Um, but obviously it's rather tantalising because it doesn't say what mis sexual misconduct is. It just obviously seems to think it's a given that we all know what it is. So again, it's up to us, I think, to interpret it um, ourselves. Uh, it's a highly subjective thing from culture to culture. So I can't claim to speak for Buddhists in general. There is no one answer to this question. Um, views vary enormously. Some Buddhists might consider my views very shocking. Um, but at the time of the Buddha, probably sexual misconduct was kind of you know, rape and pillage, really. Uh, you've got tribal people crossing boundaries between their small kingdoms, uh, licking each other's women, and... Um, you know, that's, that's not on. <laughs> and then you've got the Buddha talking to his monks who have vowed to be celibate and uh, obviously they're not supposed to be complicating their communal lives with sexual relationships. Um, <clears throat> but I'd say that uh, a, lot, a lot of Asian Buddhists tend to, to interpret sexual misconduct as anything outside heterosexual marriage, which uh, is understandable. But I'd say it's cultural rather than Buddhist, rather than inherently Buddhist. In this particular Buddhist movement, we also have a set of five positive precepts, which are the, the positive counterpart to the, the precepts framed in the negative, things to avoid. So we also try to cultivate loving-kindness. We try to cultivate generosity. We shall try to cultivate stillness, simplicity and contentment. 
and we try to communicate as kindly and truthfully as we can. And we try to cultivate clear awareness. So the positive version of precept number three, sexual misconduct, is to cultivate stillness, simplicity and contentment, which gives you a clue as to what we might think is the issue with sexual misconduct, at least in this Buddhist tradition. It's that it's a state of desire. It's often associated, just let's not theorise about this, just go back to your own experience. It's a state of desire often associated with dissatisfaction, with craving, with wanting. With, and if, once you've got the thing that you wanted, it's associated with possessiveness and attachment and maybe jealousy as well. <clears throat> and we've seen that Buddhism says that uh, craving is the source of all suffering. So it follows logically that obviously sec- that the, the issue with sex is that it, it, is, it contains a huge amount of potential for suffering. Um, in my experience, the strongest form of craving... Uh, we'll ever experience is for sexual or romantic is for sexual or romantic intimacy with another person. Uh, I suppose I suppose possibly drug addiction might be um, even stronger, but I'm not sure whether whether that existed as a as a huge problem in the Buddha's time. Um, so I'd say that sex isn't bad. It's not funny or dirty or shameful. It's just something humans like to do, isn't it? Um, it's not exactly a basic need um, in the same way as eating and drinking because you could live without it Um, although I know sometimes it doesn't feel like that (laughs) but um, in itself it's morally neutral but it depends on how you use it so through sex we can express generosity, tenderness, care, awareness, beauty, love it can be a wonderful thing it can also be used violently, selfishly and manipulatively. I think either way, actually, there's always an element of craving, at least a small element of craving. So therefore, it has to come with a health warning, really. Um, Attachment this strong can involve some of the strongest pain, loss, disappointment, jealousy that we'll ever know in life. So, having given that sort of health warning, government health warning... What would be a reasonable sexual ethic for us today, um, from a Buddhist perspective? I'm going to go on and just outline that, my view, which I think is shared by most Western Buddhists that I've ever met, uh, is not whether you're attracted to women or to men. It's not whether you actually have sex with women or men, or how often, or whether you're married, or were civil partnered, or not. Um... It's got to do with the content of the relationship, not the form of it. It's about living with kindness, with generosity and awareness in all our relationships, in, all our, in our sexual relationships as in all other relationships. It's, in short, it's, by, it's about living by all the precepts in the sexual area of our lives. Because it's about what causes suffering for ourselves and for others. This is what the, pre- the precepts of Buddhism are all about. I'm just going to attempt to have a drink amidst this forest of wires. Okay, so I'm going to move on now to the topic of identity. On the one hand, Buddhism says that we possess, each of us possesses a glorious potential for constantly unfolding wisdom and compassion developing beyond our wildest dreams in terms of courage, 
capability, friendship and wisdom. Sounds great, doesn't it? On the other hand, we all seem to hold rather particular views about life, about others, about ourselves. And uh, the ones about ourselves often start like this. I could never... dot dot dot. I'm not the sort of person who... I always... or I don't do X... dot dot dot. Um, you can spot them because they usually start like that. And here are some more. Um, that women or men are no good at certain things. That all male air stewards, hairdressers and primary school teachers are gay. <laughs> all Muslims are terrorists. A black person could never be president of the United States of America. Uh, heterosexual people are all boring. Gay people are superficial. Buddhists are nice, quiet people. <laughs> they never have arguments. White people are all racist and real, real men don't cry. The list is endless. They're all views. They're all partly true, possibly, but they're all limiting. And they're all limiting because they prevent us seeing ourselves and others simply as unique individuals, people with unlimited, unimaginable potential for wisdom, compassion, generosity, fearlessness. So one day in 1986, I suddenly realised, and it was like this, that uh, I was interested in relationships with women. And there was a word and a concept for this. And so I was coming out in Brighton at the tail end of lesbian feminist separatism, which was very strong in Brighton, and into a community of radical and political women. Uh, some of them didn't even employ male plumbers <coughs> because they were so committed to a new post-patriarchal world in which women would do everything for themselves. And so this new identity, this new sexual identity, came with a set of political views, a sense of belonging. Very, very potent that we all have a wish to belong. And there were some really good things about spending the first few years in my tribe, right, tribe of women. Um, it was exciting. I just cannot forget the excitement of starting to go to a club down on the Steen in Brighton, where when, when you went to the door one night a week, they opened a little peephole in the door to check out who you were before they let you in. In, in hindsight, it's ridiculous, because it was years after decriminalisation of male homosexuality. Female homosexuality wasn't illegal at all. But I think I just did it because it was exciting. <laughs> it was sort of naughty and forbidden. It made you feel like you really belonged to this secret tribe. <coughs> And, uh, you know, you build up gradually, you build up confidence and a sense of identity. This is who I am. It also knocked up quite a hole in my, uh, quite a dent in my previous identity. Uh, encountering this new world expanded my horizons hugely. I had a quite sheltered upbringing. Overnight, I went from being a white, upper middle class, highly educated person to a member of a despised minority. This was the 1980s. So, you know, think Margaret Thatcher and AIDS. It was not a good time. <laughs> not a good time to develop a positive self-view as a gay person. That's actually very good for you, in a way. And uh, I also joined a, a direct action group called Outrage. And we went on really exciting demos and interrupted things for people when they didn't want them interrupted. <laughs> it was great fun. Um, you know, so we went and we blew whistles at um, Church of England meetings and things, and we invaded the pulpit of Westminster Cathedral on Easter morning, which was highly offensive, but just such good fun. <laughs> and um, there, but there was a downside to this. There was a downside. Um, one was that you had to pretend that really third-rate feminist theatre was really excellent <laughs> <laughs> for the sisterhood. 
And I do also remember after a few, a few months of this, walking up the street thinking, now that I am a lesbian, um, do I now have to be ang- politically angry on principle for the rest of my life? Is this a creative way to live? Um, so I went on my last outrage demo in 1994 when... Um, uh, I don't know if you remember this, there was, there was a rather infamous uh, morning when a group of us went and outed ten bishops of the Church of England. I just checked out the photograph yesterday, it's still online and I'm still in it, <laughs> holding up some poor man's name. And, you know, I, I, we were standing there holding up these names of these, these men who um, had actually never, des- never apparently um, denied having sex with men, whilst also allegedly discriminating against male priests under their care male gay priests under their care. Um, but I remember somebody coming up to one of the other people who was holding a name, one of the passing Christians, uh, saying, who is this man and why are you naming him? And the man saying, I don't know, go and ask so-and-so. And I remember thinking, this is indefensible. This is absolutely indefensible. If you stand here and you name someone, you have to know exactly why. Personally, you have to know why you're naming this other human being. And I was sitting on the bus going home from this demo and I was asking myself why I'd gone to it. And I thought, it's because I woke up this morning feeling a bit bored. I didn't know what to do with myself. The telephone rang, somebody said, come out on this demo. And I thought, yeah, I feel good now. I feel a sense of existence, a sense of identity. I'm going to go out on this demo with my friends and we're going to be someone. And I thought, this isn't good enough. It's not good enough for me anyway. I'm not going again. Meanwhile, I had quite a number of jobs. I used to write for the Pink Paper, which was then the UK's brand new National Lesbian and Gay Weekly newspaper. I wrote the Religion and Spirituality column. Uh, and there's another aside, a little-known fact that uh, one of the co-founders and at least three other members of its early staff are all members of, the, of this Buddhist order now, quite separately by coincidence. <clears throat> anyway, after a little while, my mother asked what else I was going to do with my life. You know, you know when your parents ask you what you're going to be when you grow up? I think my mother was starting to think that I thought it was, the answer was a lesbian. <laughs> and uh, I wasn't completely pigeonholed, actually, because in one year I got published, at, in the same year, in the pink paper, Marxism Today and Country Life. So I don't think any, many people can actually claim that. But uh, anyway, belonging was absolutely great. Belonging was great, and we do all need to belong. If you're a member of the community at this Buddhist centre, you'll have a sense of belonging here as well. Um, So we all belong in various different ways to our families, to our partners, to our spiritual communities, political groups, our parties. But I want to move on to the possible pitfalls of becoming over-identified with our sexuality. For me, I think it was a limited identification with the political aspect of my sexuality. For others, it might be also an over-identification with oneself as a sexual being, over-investing in one's sexual nature, depending for our sense of self-worth upon our continuing physical attractiveness to the people we want to attract. You only have to walk down Deansgate on a Saturday night to see this in operation. Um, Well, you know... Another important teaching of Buddhism is impermanence. I bet you don't look the same as you did ten years ago. Uh, we're not going to be gorgeous forever. You know, we need a much deeper sense of identity and security. So I've said that the Buddha didn't say very much about sexual relationships as we know them, but as we've seen, he did give plenty of teachings about what kind of behaviour leads to the end of suffering and to the development of wisdom and compassion. 
He also said a lot about the nature of self and identity. So let's come on to his teachings about the nature of self. I need to explain, in a nutshell, a much bigger teaching. So just imagine every phenomenon in your experience in the universe, from a tsunami to your every passing thought and emotion, they all come into being depending on a number of existing conditions. And when those conditions change or end, so does the thing they gave rise to. So this is the Buddha's teaching of conditionality. It's a big teaching. It's cosmic, in fact. It's mind-blowing. Um, I'll give you a very, very simple example. So if you can remember back to primary school, some of us will find that easier than others. And uh, you may have done an experiment where you, found out, you, you tried to find out what conditions a seed or a broad bean needs to germinate. Hello, welcome. Lots of chairs over there. So we're going to find out the, the conditions upon which the germination of a seed depends. And uh, do you, does anyone remember this? You take five test tubes and you put a seed in each one. Oh dear, things must have changed since your time. <laughs> so you take, you take a row of test tubes and you put a seed, an ungerminated seed in each one. And then you deny each of those test tubes one thing that it really needs. So... Um, well, what do you think that a seed needs to germinate? Water. Water, yeah. Some, uh, some kind of growing medium. Sunshine, yes, light, yeah. Anything else? Warmth. Warmth. Oxygen as well. If you put a cork in the top of each, one, uh, each of these, you'll deny them each one of these things. And if you put one in the cupboard, with, uh, if the cupboard's got a keyhole, you'll see this little thing does germinate, but it germinates in a very spindly way towards the light. It's just desperate for the light. So... From this, we, we can see that the, the, the phenomenon of the germination of a seed depends on there being uh, a limited number of, of essential conditions, without which it doesn't germinate at all, or it germinates in a rather unhealthy kind of way. So that's a very, very simple example of conditionality. Actually, in life, it's much, much bigger than that. Um, and we don't have time to go into that. That's the subject of several evening courses, probably. Um, and Buddhism isn't interested in asking how or why this is the case. It just observes that this is the case. Nothing happens without pre-existing conditions. And when those conditions change or cease, the thing itself changes or ceases. So you don't have to agree with me, by the way. Okay, Just accept this as a logical proposition for the moment. If it's true, it must follow that everything is constantly changing. Everything must be in a constant state of change and development, ending and beginning including me and including you. So here's another example. Um, a child with an ice cream. They've been promised an ice cream. You know the anticipation that you see in their eyes as they're nearing the ice cream van. <laughs> um, they get the ice cream. There's total delight, absorption in that licking and all the dripping and everything. And the next minute they drop their ice cream in the sand. We're on the beach here. You know what... That happens next. Shock, disappointment, anger, loss, craving. Um, if you want to apply this to yourself and you're not keen on ice cream, then just think about the anticipated sexual encounter of your dreams and when it doesn't materialise. Um, so Buddhism would say that you changed as you responded to each development in this story. So who you are is an ever-changing thing as your moods and responses change. So we could say that identity is a composite and fluid thing. In fact, uh, the founder of this particular Buddhist teacher, uh, this particular Buddhist 
tradition, whose picture is on the shrine there, in the silver frame, he has described, memorably described what we think of as our identity or our personality as a bundle of habits loosely tied together with a name and address. <laughs> Which is a bit deflating, isn't it, really? <laughs> so it's in this sense that Buddhism asserts that we actually have no self. No self. This is a core Buddhist teaching. So it means that nothing, there's nothing that outlasts the body, unchanging. There's nothing that lives on forever, unchanging. Now, you might not like this idea. It threatens our sense of being someone. But there is continuity. So each time I go to visit my mother, she still recognises me as Monisha, even though much has changed. I've had a haircut, my nails have grown. Um, I might be a different temperature from when she shut the door on me. <laughs> All sorts of things happen that, that change one constantly. Um, and, and also she calls me Catherine, <laughs> which, uh, which, you know, it's an interesting question as to whether my identity is... is uh, different or the same when, when people call me by my ordination name, which is Munisha, or by my birth name, which is Catherine. Um, but we're not saying that there's nothing here that's constant. Everything is changing and fluid, but we're not saying there's nothing here. Buddhism is not nihilistic. There is something here. I am speaking to you. This cast iron pillar is definitely here. And it hurts, actually, when I bang on it. <laughs> so I'll stop now. But it doesn't exist in the way that we think it does. It's a bunch of bouncing atoms. It's constantly changed. It's, it's in itself a fluid, way, a fluid thing. This is mind-boggling. I don't understand it myself. But anyway, this is the, this is the teaching. Um, this column is process. And so am I. So uh, if we are change... If we are changed, it makes more sense not to rest with fixed assumptions about any aspect of ourselves. Our lack of fixed identity offers enormous potential, spaciousness. If we're not fixed, and if it's true that everything changes in response to the changing conditions around it, we can harness this changeability through the behaviour that we choose, as outlined in the ethical precepts, which I described earlier, but which I'm afraid the five of you at the back there have missed. You can come for a recap afterwards. <laughs> um, we can all change for the better. We can change for the happier and the kinder and the deeper. But here's a paradox and a danger. So Buddhism says we have no self, but we do also need a healthy sense of self. So Buddhism's like that quite a lot of the time. It's paradox mind-bending, deeply profound. It's very easy to misuse the Buddha's teachings on no self, because after all, if you don't like some aspect of yourself, perhaps you don't like your sexual orientation, or you don't like your biological sex, or your ethnicity, or whatever aspect of you that it is that you don't like, it's easy just to cut off from it and say, OK, well, it's OK because I have no self, and just become very, very alienated. And uh, that's dangerous, and that's not what the Buddha meant. Try living without a healthy sense of self-respect and you will quickly be run over by a bus that you didn't bother to get out of the way of. I mean, if you've got no sense of self at all, then, you know, you could just step out the window instead of using the stairs after the talk, couldn't you? <laughs> Obviously, that's ridiculous. Um, but if we start to live with no healthy sense of self, we will quite quickly become unhappy and possibly mentally ill. 
So don't go there. Um, this is not what Buddhism is talking about. It's not about mistreating ourselves and becoming alienated. We do need to cultivate a positive identity and warm respect and compassion for ourselves, including our sexuality. So it's great. Buddhism provides some very practical me methods by which we can develop this healthy self-respect. We don't have loads of time to go into them, but uh, meditation, there are loving-kindness meditation, ethical practice to help us cultivate ethics towards ourselves as much as to all other living things. And through spiritual community, friends who can encourage us and show us our strengths, encourage us on the path that we've committed ourselves to. So this is why it's, I think it's very, very important for us, uh, for Buddhists, not to just read books about Buddhist ideas. It's not just about, it's not just about reading things, it's about practising the teachings together as a community. And that's what really benefits us. So, so to repeat, identity is something that we all need. And identity is process. And here's a funny idea. It's a process that we need to embrace and let go of in every passing moment because it keeps changing. And uh, if you want an image for this, um, again, do you remember being in the school gym when we were little, in our little gym shorts, and climbing up to the top of the ropes to the ceiling of the gym? And remember the instructions you were given when it was time to come down, which is don't come, too fa don't come down too fast and don't come down holding on tight to the rope because you'll burn your hands, won't you? So we need to come down this rope with with gentleness and uh, sensitivity, constantly holding on and letting go and holding on and letting go uh, so you don't get your hands burnt. It's the same with how we, I think, we can embrace a sense of identity. Okay, so we're coming to the end, and this is where we come to the Indian freedom movement bit. Um, I've spent this last 18 years in this Buddhist community, and uh, this is where I first heard about a man called Dr. Ambedkar, who happens, luckily, to be on the shrine there. Somebody has anticipated my needs. Um, he's in the photograph on the shrine. And uh, Dr. Ambedkar, Bimrao Ramji Ambedkar, was the great leader of a very little-known Indian freedom movement uh, throughout the 20th century. And he, he was the leader of a peaceful revolution which trans transformed the lives of millions of India's poorest peoples, particularly since the 1950s. It's a very big story, so I'm going to tell it very quickly. Um, he was born into the lowest level of Hinduism's caste system, as an untouchable, and as such, his people were not allowed to go to school, not allowed to drink from the same water sources as high-caste Hindus. They discriminated against, still today, in the most, in the most awful ways imaginable. Um, but by a series of great, good, fortunate uh, uh, coincidences and um, opportunities... He did actually manage to get an, an education. He became a politician, and he, in, in fact, he ended his days as India's first law minister, the first law minister of independent India. He drafted the new constitution, and as such, he made untouchability illegal. So it's illegal to treat people as untouchable in India today. And uh, the untouchables, ex-untouchables, often prefer to be called Dalits, but just as with all the terminology around... Uh, ethnicity and uh, sexual minorities. No one can actually agree on what terms are acceptable. So um, some people don't even like the term Dalit um, rather than untouchable. But he achieved enormous social change for his people. It was quite extraordinary what he achieved. But eventually he realised something that I think is vitally relevant to all minority groups elsewhere, uh, which is that legal change doesn't of itself bring ultimate inner freedom. 
real freedom could only come from a change in people's self-view, from their attitude to themselves, to their sense of identity, positive sense of identity, through which, to go even further, they could also help others, not just themselves. So eventually, Dr. Ambedkar decided to change religion. And uh, many of his people became Christians and Muslims and Sikhs, but actually he chose Buddhism. And he converted to Buddhism publicly at an enormous gathering in Nagpur in central India in 1956, followed by something like 380,000 people who'd gathered to watch him. And to, that, to this day, mass conversions continue all over India, people becoming Buddhist. So what's the lesson in all this for us? Uh, well, you probably noticed that in the last decade, British law and culture regarding sexual liberties, civil liberties for sexual minorities has changed beyond anyone's wildest imaginations, even just since 10 years ago. We now have civil partnerships, equality of access to goods and services. We have openly gay people in the armed services and on the archers and in TV soaps. And we have people presenting TV and radio shows who are openly gay or not even defining themselves one way or the other. So legal change has had an enormous effect. But are we really free yet? Are you free of self-hatred? Are you free of self-doubt? Are you free of mistrust of others? Are you free of nagging desires? Whatever our identity, I'd argue that true liberation comes only from within. If you want a contemporary example, you could look to the uh, Burmese democracy leader, Aung San Suu Kyi, who gave the Wreath Lectures a few weeks ago. She's a practising Buddhist. I regard her as, uh, like Dr Ambedkar, a modern Buddhist hero. She has none of the civil liberties that I take for granted. She lives under a brutal military dictatorship, and she's lived for many, many years under house arrest, although she was recently released. And when she was asked whether there was much difference between, well, what, what, what the difference was between living under house arrest or being free, she said, not really much difference. She consistently says, this is not really much difference because I always consider myself free because my mind is free. It's mind-boggling. <laughs> mind-boggling. I always consider myself free because my mind is free. And in Buddhism, the word mind very, it generally includes the heart as well. I don't distinguish between mind and heart. So here's my conclusion, coming to the end now. What might be a reasonable attitude to take to ourselves as sexual beings in the 21st century? It has nothing to do with the commands of a creator, but with what kind of attitude and behaviour causes least suffering, gives most meaning, most opportunity for growth in our humanity. It's to live knowing that all our actions always have an effect, and therefore doing our best to avoid causing harm, by living with generosity, contentment, honesty and awareness in our sexual lives as in all our other relationships. It's about living with a fluid sense of ourselves as ever-changing, ever-developing potential rather than identifying with sexuality or any other aspect of ourselves. Labels, whatever they are, are always too small for our energy and the potential of the human being longing for transformation and growth transcending a current state of being. If everything is process, then our deepest potential is an ocean of generosity, limitless compassion, mountainous integrity, wisdom stretching far beyond the imagination. 
And may we develop this for the sake of all beings. Thank you.